So, you know, everybody loves a good story, whether it's the, the latest novel, blockbuster film, or TV series you get addicted to, because they engage your imagination. They, they impact your emotions, and the really, really good ones can even impact your thinking. In fact, some recent medical research shows that our brains are actually hardwired to uh, seek out a coherent plot structure in the stories that we hear, and that structure helps us to absorb the information and connect it with our own experiences in the world. The only difficulty and unfortunate thing about that is that process works whether we're being fed a story that's true or a story that's a lie. And the reason I tell you that is because today we're going to hear the story of the most amazing life-giving event in the history of our world, and then we're going to hear an empty, pathetic lie told in an attempt to cover that up. And so we're looking, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open your Bibles with me, please, to uh, Matthew 28. We're skipping all the way to the end, and I'm going to read you the first 15 verses. So if you open your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1, and listen for the voice of the Spirit. And now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I've told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And God, our Father, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open to us again this beautiful story, this story that's uh, sadly in so many ways become so familiar that we gloss over many parts of it, Lord, but make it alive today to the hearing of it. Quicken our spirits. Uh, take any distractions out of our minds. Uh, and in just these next few moments, we ask, Lord, to see your son in his living word. Amen. So back in, uh, back in 2016, I preached a Resurrection Day sermon entitled The Empty Promises of Easter. And in that message, we looked at the empty cross, the empty burial shroud, and the empty tomb, which, of course, are the most obvious themes for the day. And we're going to touch on them again today for sure before I'm through but I wanted to come at this message from a little different angle today and pick up from those well-known parts of the Easter message and talk to you about a couple aspects of it that you may not know quite as well. And, and it's funny, when I was thinking about uh, doing this and the message this way, it reminded me 
uh, the story of a famous Moody Bible conference speaker who had he had worked and planned to put a lot of time into a 10-point sermon for the opening day of Moody Bible Conference, but he had overestimated his material and, and underestimated his time slot, and he was just forced to stop at point number six without finishing the message. And he just figured maybe he'd you know, be allowed to give the rest of it the next day. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and then through a whole course of events, he didn't get invited back to that event for quite a few years. Uh, but undaunted and sure of his sermon, when he finally did get back uh, and back into that pulpit, the very first thing he said was, and seventhly, <laughs> and, and went on from there. So uh, I, I'm going to kind of try to take a page out of that book today, uh, because you already know the first three points of my message. You already know about the empty cross, the empty burial shroud, and the empty tomb. And so I'm going to uh, start with that established and move on to what I'm calling point number four. So fourthly, uh, this morning is the empty plan. And this is from Matthew 27. So this is jumping back a, a chapter. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62, we're told the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So as I said, this is, this is back one chapter from the story of the resurrection and in this part of the Gospel of Matthew, our Lord's been crucified, of course, he's died. He's been buried in a borrowed tomb. And the religious leaders believe that they have succeeded in putting an end to their Jesus problem. But they want to be sure. And so the religious leaders devise a plan because the chief priests and the guards remembered that at times Jesus, whom they refer to as this imposter or this deceiver, depending on the version that you're reading, claimed that he would rise from the dead. And they wanted to be sure that that didn't happen and that someone didn't devise a plan to make it look like it had happened. Because Jesus had, in fact, said repeatedly that he would rise again. Uh, back in Matthew 16, 21, we read, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. The next chapter, Matthew 17, in verse 22, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they'll kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised. And so the Romans and the religious leaders are a little nervous here, and as one commentator said, they want this whole Jesus movement to stay buried in the tomb. And since they're so concerned with the disciples devising a plan, they devise a plan of their own. They go to Pilate, and he grants them some guards and his authority to seal the sepulcher, and these guards are stationed near the entrance to the tomb, and the, the stone that covered the door was plastered over and marked with the governor's own seal, signifying the authority of Rome. So that if someone tried to disturb the tomb over the weekend, they'd 
first of all, have to face the guards, which wouldn't be a lot of fun. Uh, and if they were somehow able to get past the guards, they'd have to break open the official seal on the stone, which could be punished with imprisonment or, or possibly even death. So, so the leaders talk this all out. It seems like a substantial, solid approach to the chief priests and the elders of Israel. In fact, uh, they thought their plan was foolproof, uh, except the truth is it was, it was just plain foolish because all of their empty words and their hollow plans and their twisted plots could not keep the word of God in that tomb. All the plans of man, all the schemes of the devil, all the brightest leaders in Israel and the finest soldiers in Rome could not stop the power of God, and they couldn't stop the resurrection of Jesus. And so for all that they did to circumvent the greatest story ever told, the story of Christ coming back to life, they just ended up making the account of it all the more credible because not only was the scene now crowded with all of these witnesses, right, in the form of angels and soldiers and mourning women, now some of Jesus' own men show up to join the narrative and see firsthand the fallout from the high priest's plan as those plans fall apart with nothing to show for them except for my point number five, which is Mary's empty fear. That's, that's all they got out of it was poor Mary's empty fear in the aftermath of that empty tomb. So the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John chapter 20 <coughs> that when she, meaning Mary, ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter arrived and went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. And then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So, so when Peter and John heard the account from Mary Magdalene and heard her empty fear that the body of Jesus, which had been placed in the sepulcher on Friday afternoon, was no longer there, and her conclusion that Enemies had taken it away. Instantly, the two apostles run to the sepulcher with, with John outrunning Peter and getting there first. And every time I read that, I love the fact that John couldn't resist slipping in that little detail, right? Just a little, right? But when Peter and John go inside, they, they don't see the body of Jesus, but they do see the grave clothes. And they saw them in a certain order. We read the linen clothes lying in one spot and the face cloth for the head being in a place by itself. And these empty grave clothes and the way that they were arranged made a huge impression on John. And we read that he saw that and he believed. But, but what exactly did he believe? Right? Was it the story that, that Mary told of Jesus' body not being there that he believed? But that wouldn't really make any sense because he didn't have to notice the linen to know the body was gone, right? Uh, so what would the arrangement of the grave clothes have to do with him seeing that the body was not there? Yet it was, we're told it was seeing the arrangement that caused him to believe. And so you could say, well, maybe, maybe it means he believed Mary's fear that since the body wasn't there that the enemies of Jesus had stolen it. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either because it's inconceivable that if a body had been stolen that the thieves would have taken all the time to take the body out of the wrapping and then make sure to put the wrappings back, right? But Scripture clearly tells us that when John saw the arrangement of the grave clothes that he believed. Because until then, he and Peter 
didn't really understand from Scripture exactly how Jesus would rise from the dead, but seeing these empty grave clothes in neat arrangement provided John the first evidence that Jesus had in fact arisen. Because when John wrote that he saw the linen cloths lying, the word he used there does not merely refer to the fact that they were just lying out on the floor discarded, but rather the words that he used allude to the fact that they were lying precisely. That the grave clothes were in exactly the position that the body had occupied. And so you have to kind of imagine this, this scene because the linen wrappings that we're talking about are kind of on the order of wide bandages that we'd use to wrap up a leg or an injured arm. And these burial wrappings of Jesus would have started at the feet and continued up until they reached the neck. And they, they didn't wrap the head or the face, but instead they tied a square cloth around the head. And that, that'd be the method used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And in fact, John had actually written about this in his account uh, in one chapter earlier in 19. So in John 19, 39, we read, uh, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, and he, and he, listen to this, he brought about 75 pounds of perfume, perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, the body was wrapped with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. And so just imagine, right, these two men pour pounds and pounds and pounds of the spiced ointment into the wrappings and over the body of Jesus. And these liquid spices would dry and harden in the wrappings that would cause the, the cloth to stick together and become almost like a cocoon around the body of Jesus following its contours and, and trapping in the odors and the fluids of a decomposing body, uh, specifically because Jewish burial customs forbid the practice of embalming the dead like the Egyptians did. And so the only way, humanly speaking, that a body could be removed from all of that, humanly speaking, removed from that resin and wrapping would be by cutting the cloth apart from end to end and laying back each side so the body could be pulled out of it. But when the disciples saw the linen clothes lying there uncut, undisturbed, cocoon-like, lying just as they had been but now empty, it convinced them that the body of Jesus had been miraculously, supernaturally removed. And as one commentator said, had emerged right through the grave clothes, disappearing from within the knots and folds undisturbed to serve as a silent memorial. <clears throat> and those empty grave clothes still clutching at the vanished body left testimony to the presence and the power of Almighty God. But not everyone believed. Which takes me to my sixth and final point, and that is the empty lie. And as I read to you, uh, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So, you know, as you might imagine, the news of the happenings that morning at Jesus' tomb started to spread. And the guards started to talk. Some of them came to tell the chief priests everything that had happened and it was at this point that the priests and the elders had to come up with another plan because the very thing that they had tried to prevent from happening had happened 
And not only that, but because they were the ones who had stationed the guards who now became unwitting eyewitnesses, because they had stationed them there, now the miracle looked even more miraculous. And so these leaders had really dug themselves into a hole. And the best they can come up with is to continue the empty lie and cover up the truth. But, you know, as with all empty lies, they don't stand a chance against the actual truth, do they? This empty lie based on the idea that a group of professional soldiers all fell asleep on the job all at the same time. Brother Mike, what's the chances of that happening? Slim to none, right? All at the same time with not a single one of those guys on watch. It just doesn't make any sense, right? To, to say nothing of the fact that in the Roman army con, uh, context, conviction of a defense like that would have cost them their lives. They wouldn't have risked it. I know those guards knew that they saw what they saw. And they weren't about to risk their necks for a bunch of stuffed shirt members of the Sanhedrin or a bunch of religious fanatics, unless, of course, there was enough money involved. Enough money for the Jewish leaders to not only pay off the guards, but to pay off their supervisors. And if you're keeping track, this little empty lie and these half-baked plans to try and stop the reality of the resurrection are starting to get kind of expensive. Right? First, they'd started all the way back by paying off Judas. And now they've got to pay off the guards. And they've got to pay off the guards' bosses, and likely the governor, too, and there's no telling who else. With the irony being that the Jewish leaders call Jesus the deceiver when they're the ones who continue to breed the deception. Because just think about it for a minute. Can you imagine 11 regular guys overpowering a company of Roman soldiers right? and moving this huge stone all to steal the body of Jesus just so they could claim he came back to life? For what? Right, what did they get out of it? Anybody? Nothing, right? And let me tell you what they actually got for their trouble. The apostle Andrew was crucified on a cross like his master. Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. James the Less was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten up. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Matthew was killed by the sword. Peter was scourged and crucified upside down. Philip was scourged and crucified. Doubting Thomas was thrust through with a spear after he traveled all the way to India to spread the gospel. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword, and Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. So you see, each of those men willingly died rather than deny the truth of the resurrection. Because as I said in Sunday school, who's going to die for a lie? I know I wouldn't. So what does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means that Jesus' men who were hiding out for fear of their lives on Friday night had an amazing change of heart before the weekend was over. And it means that their bold conduct and their confident preaching was based on a genuine encounter with the risen Christ and not some kind of generalized delusion. It means that something sure changed for Peter, who had just denied Jesus a few nights ago, and now he was ready to stand even at the threat of death to proclaim that Jesus was alive. Because Jesus' followers could not have faced the torture and death that they faced unless they were absolutely convinced of the resurrection. Because if these guys were somehow deceivers, it's pretty hard to explain why at least one of them didn't crack under the pressure. But they didn't. Because they knew what was true. And you know, today the world tells us if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But the truth of the matter is that our God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. Our God is different. And so instead of promises full of emptiness on Easter, God gave us something empty but full of promise. And that's the empty cross 
the empty shroud and the empty tomb. And all three of those so full of the truth of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that no amount of coerced lies or concocted plans could cover it up. And brothers and sisters, the story isn't over. It's ours to tell in this generation and to bear witness to the fact that Christ's resurrection was not only real, but revolutionary and opened a new and living way into the presence of God, a way that's open to you and to all who repent and believe the gospel. And so I say to you today, repent and believe the gospel. It's open to all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, to all who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, because if you do, you will be saved. You will be saved into the eternal kingdom of our Savior, where the good things of God continually increase. And life is an everlasting story in which every chapter is better than the one before. And all of that because of the presence of our risen Lord Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, the one who writes our names in the Lamb's book of life and makes himself our home and our happy ending at Easter and always. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we embark on this holy Easter tide, fill us anew, we ask, with the wonder of the empty tomb, with the hope of the empty cross, and, and free us, Father, from sin and doubt that they may be discarded just like that empty shroud. Send us out this week in faith to share the gospel and call your elect by it, Lord, please, both now, today, in this service, and in our homes, and in our communities, and we ask it in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.